who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. This program contains grown-up themes and language that the FCC doesn't like. Use your common sense. You're listening to Beautiful Red, a novel by M. Darusha Wayne. Find out more at darusha.ca slash beautifulred. Fifteen. After a beer and a contraband cigarette, Jack finally got over the frustration at her inability to do anything, then spent the rest of the night finishing her report for Jill and Adrian. She would send it out to them before she left. With these new images from Bellos, as well as the information she had been gathering, she had a fairly complete report to send them. They had both been harassing her for updates, but she was afraid that one or both of them would try to stop her from going if she told them what was going on. She knew her fears about her friends were really her own sense of personal security trying to stop her from doing something foolish. But if she could keep anyone else from voicing those thoughts she'd be able to ignore the voices in her head. As a quick break, she booked space on the TGV for herself and her scooter. She planned to drive to the complex, since she'd never been to the capital of Cascadia before, and figured she ought to see the sights while she was there. Sort of a working holiday, she thought. She finished off the report, filed it away in its encrypted directory, and went to bed for the last time in her own room, before going into the den of the enemy. She was feeling melodramatic. The next day was Tuesday, Jack's last day at work before the weekend. She got up early and pulled her scooter out of storage, where it had been locked up for at least six months. She brought it up to her room, where it nearly filled the available space. She plugged it into the electric socket to make sure that it would be well charged by the evening, and ensured that she had a couple of jugs of veg oil in the panniers as well. She stuffed a couple of changes of clothes in a bag and shoved it under the space under the seat. She left the scooter to charge as she headed to work. When Jack got to her cube, she saw that Jill had left already. He left her a note reminding her to send him a report, which she trashed as soon as she'd read it, even though the Bella system retained a log of all internal messages, trashed or kept. She spent the day so preoccupied by her weekend plans that she barely paid any attention to the new reports of another theft from the sub-basements. She knew that the perpetrators had bigger problems than getting caught and fired by Bellas. 
They were not even really human anymore, Jack figured. She ran the one decent image she had from the theft through the corporate employee records looking for a match. She was unsurprised when the program came back with a name, Mario Keating. Jack checked the employee record and saw that he was on weekend. In her gut, she knew what the answer would be, but she pinged Keating's personal system anyway. Nothing. Jack wondered if she should break in like she had with Estella Rowan, but she was sure she didn't want to go through that again. She sat in her chair, took a sip of coffee, and paged over to the internal news boards. This time there was a piece about the thefts and how there was going to be an investigation of all staff. Jack knew that eventually her recorders would be found, and that she would have to share what she knew, and at that point it would be helpful for everyone if she could point to the culprit. But she also knew that the real perpetrator wasn't Mario Keating, the cafeteria worker. It was the Red's human control program. Oh, fuck it, she thought. She didn't want to have to go through the same experience she had with Rowan's system, so she decided to go old school. She ran a terminal emulator and started typing in commands. She tunneled through to Keating's system, and when there was no response to her ping, she finessed her way inside. She quickly found her way to the inner sanctum, Keating's mind. It was just like with Rowan, a total mess. She finally found his consciousness, or what was left of it. She grabbed scans of his brainwaves and got the hell out of there. Even in strings of characters on her viewer's screen, that was some creepy shit that Jack didn't want to be part of for long. Just as she had logged out of Keating's system and was cleaning out any traces of her visit, she heard a voice right next to her ear say, What's going on, Jack? She jumped in spite of herself and focused on the physical space around her. It was Tony, looking pale and disheveled. What do you mean? Jack asked, trying to calm both of them with a matter-of-fact demeanor. There was another break-in, he said. What does it mean? Are we all in trouble? I think we'll be okay, Jack said. It's probably just streeters or someone taking stuff to sell on the black market. She knew it wasn't that believable a lie, but she figured that Tony was desperate for any kind of consolation. But why did they come back? he whined. Why don't they just leave us alone? I don't know, Tony, Jack snapped. Then, as she saw his face crumble, she softened her voice. But we're safe up here. Besides, they aren't really hurting anyone. They're just after things. Tony gasped and said, what do you mean, just things? What else is there? What kind of security do we have if strangers can just walk in here and make off with anything they want? That's not what I meant, Jack backpedaled, trying to come up with something that would allay Tony's concerns. Eventually, she pulled out the big guns, the bureaucratic equivalent of the killer end move. I just meant that it's not our job to deal with it. Management has assigned it to another department, so we should be fine. Oh, he said, looking relieved. That's good, then. So we shouldn't have to worry about it, then. No, Jack said. We should be fine. He smiled at her and mopped his soggy forehead with a piece of white cloth which he stuffed back into the chest pocket of his strange jacket. He went back to his cube, and Jack wondered anew if he was having some kind of malfunction. She opened up her private report for Adrian and Jill, and filled in the new details that she had learned about this most recent incident. She finished up the report about an hour before her shift ended. She spent the rest of her day doing up a quick and dirty version of the daily report she had to keep for Bellis, and trying to steal herself for the next three days. Jack's heart pounded when she thought about trying to infiltrate the Red Complex in Vancouver. 
She had learned that the headquarters of the group wasn't another dingy room in the dead zone, like the studio used by Mojo and Lafayette's group. Rather, there was a fairly large complex where several people lived full-time and many others visited. It was sort of like a tourist destination for Red members the world over. On the one hand, that gave Jack an excuse to be there. On the other hand, there were plenty of people who would expect that she had a modicum of a clue about the group. It was strange enough to pretend to be part of a group at all. Most net groups were pretty straightforward. There was no such thing as pretending to belong. If you cared enough about the subject to be there, you were part of the group. The Red seemed different to Jack. In many ways, they weren't a net group at all. They had plenty of boards, and doubtlessly most of the members had only ever met online, but fundamentally they were a physical world organization. Their actions, whether you called them crimes against society or art, were physical world events. And at their core, they had beliefs that made it difficult to meet solely on the nets. Certainly, the vast majority of their members were not hardcore believers, and there were many levels of involvement. From the digging Jack had done, she had come to realize that Mojo, Lafayette, and the others that she had met were at one end of the red spectrum, the moderate artistic end. At the other end, among the hardcore of the group, were beliefs that were counter to almost every normal opinion or way of life Jack could think of. Hardcore reds never used everywhere net. They logged into networks using a hardwired connection only. Jack wasn't sure how this was accomplished. The documents she had seen never described the process. It was one of the many things an adherent was supposed to learn in the flash. That was another concept common among the hardliners, doing things in the flash. They advocated meeting in the physical world, and many a red treatise was devoted to the concept that a physical experience was more real and therefore more intrinsically valuable than the same experience on the nets. If she was going to be honest with herself, Jack found the Reds to be a confusing bunch. On the one hand, they were very much like the typical anti-progress types. The Nets are bad, the physical world is good. But every Red Jack had seen had at least some augmentations in cybernetics, and they used the Nets as much as anyone else. She had learned enough to get a rudimentary grasp of the lingo, and although she felt completely ill-prepared, she knew this was as good as it was going to get before her pilgrimage to the Red Complex in Vancouver. She finished her report and tidied up her cubicle. She logged out of the Bella system, fought the nausea from the Everlock scan, and got her jacket from the coat rack. She headed out the door of the security room and rode the lift down to the main floor. She walked out of the Bellis building, already starting to feel her breath quicken. She rode the train back to her apartment and barely noticed any of the other passengers, even though she was offline. Her mind was buzzing so much that she almost felt as if she were online playing a high bandwidth game and reconciling her finances at the same time. Back at her apartment, she showered and changed clothes, choosing knee-length dark brown pants with several pockets, a shirt with a slight green glow to it and a bulky sweater. She grabbed a couple of cold meal packets and stuck them in one of her many pockets and loaded the others with a few essentials. She added a light silver windshell to her outfit and logged into her personal system. She pulled out her private report and prepared messages for Gilles and Adrian to envelop the report. She blind copied them both, with personalized instructions, then shut down her apartment for the next three days. She unplugged her scooter from the floor socket and stowed the cable back in its front compartment. She pushed the scooter forward and out the door of her room. Her apartment door shushed closed behind her, and she double-locked it using the strong encryption key most people kept for those moments when they're paranoid. 
She flipped on the anti-grav chip on the scooter's chassis, and it hovered a few centimeters off the floor. Anti-grav was one of those marketing terms that sounded much cooler than it really was, since all the chips did was interact with the magnetism of the floor in such a way as to repel the object to which it was attached. Jack always found it funny when people tried to use anti-grav in places that weren't metallic. So few people bothered to find out how anything worked. They seemed to prefer to believe that everything was too complicated to possibly understand. Now that the scooter was hovering over the floor, it was much easier to manhandle down the stairs of her building and onto the street. When she reached the street, the scooter thumped to the ground and she turned off the now-useless chip. Jack straddled the machine and brought up the control program. She sent her password to the machine and it started with a dull whir. She checked the charge and confirmed that the machine was fully powered. She also checked the biodiesel tanks and saw that the tanks were full to about half capacity, so she figured that without topping up, she could probably go for 200 kilometers on oil alone if she had to. She checked the street for traffic, but it was quiet as usual. She pulled onto the street, accelerating smoothly. She had a live map of the area upon her left eye, while she kept the other eye clear to watch for traffic and pedestrians. It was only a few clicks to the TGV station, so the ride didn't take very long. About halfway to the station, her system gave her an audio notification that her message to Adrian had been acknowledged. Good, she thought. If something happens to me, at least I know there's someone else who knows what I know. She pulled into the station with a good quarter of an hour to spare. She queued up for the parking zone, and was surprised to see so many other scooters, cycles, and hoverboards. Most people were happy to take the trains, which could get you anywhere in a city. Of course, the capital was a gateway to many places that didn't have such good transport system. The hinterland of the north was a popular tourist attraction among the physical world adventure types. The parking line moved quickly enough, and soon Jack was slotting her scooter into a space barely big enough to accommodate it and the panniers she had attached. She flipped on the anti-grav and hoisted the scooter up to the clamps on the side of the parking car. She slipped the wheels into the clamps and turned the anti-grav chip off as the clamps closed over the wheels, locking her scooter in place. She took an image of the location of her spot for future reference, then made her way into the passenger compartment. She found an empty seat and settled in. The TGV ran at just over 400 kilometers an hour, so Jack anticipated that the trip would take roughly four hours. She had exhausted her capacity for research and preparation by this point, so she pulled out a meal packet and opened it just as the train was starting off. After she was done her dinner, she pulled out a bottle from one of her pockets, a three-hour draft of sleeping juice. She drank it down in one, thinking that it wouldn't hurt to sleep through this one train ride. She leaned back slightly in the chair, and the dark curtain of sleep fell over her almost immediately. Zero, zero, one, zero, one. This has to stop. The last time I came out of a blackout, I knew that this isn't just some malfunction with the hardware. This is a real problem. I came to in my room, at my table, as I have so often these last few weeks. I was cold, as I usually am after one of these episodes. But this time, my hands... My hands were all scraped, scratched, and bleeding like I'd been fighting or tearing into a bolt of glass cloth without gloves. And I have no memory of any of it. Of course, I listened to my recordings. I listened to them over and over until I finally couldn't stand it anymore. 
because there's nothing. Not even background noise or hiss. The entire section of my blackout has been erased. And the log says, I'm the one who erased it. You've been listening to Beautiful Red by M. Derisha Wayne. Find out more at d-a-r-u-s-h-a dot c-a slash beautifulred or subscribe for free at patiobooks.com. The theme music is low-level format by Bjorn Fogelberg. Learn more about Bjorn's music at fogelberg.com and you can buy the album Karushi Porn at magnatune.com. If you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. Leave a comment on the website. Send email to derusha at derusha.ca. Leave a comment on the patio book site. Or call the listener line at 206-984-2976. Thanks for listening.